You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Again, it is uh, good to be with you this morning. Um, you have your Bibles if you want to go ahead and turn those on or flip them, flip the pages if you have an old one like me, um, to Psalm number three. We're going to be in Psalm three today uh, as we exposit God's word. While you're turning there, um, I was doing some research the other day on tea and coffee. Um, my scientific mind likes to go down these rabbit holes. Um, it seems like no matter where you go, no matter whose house you go to, whatever restaurant you go to, there's always tea or always coffee. And one of the most interesting things that these two drinks have in common is they're not manufactured in the sense that they're made in a big plant like Coca-Cola, right? They're, they're steeped, and tea itself is thousands, thousands of years old, but they're, they're made by steeping or brewing in, in the presence of something that is tainted tasteless water into something more complex and more beautiful. Um, tea is actually the second most consumed beverage in the world, if you're curious. Um, and coffee somewhere between third and fifth, depending on which set of statistics you, you look at. Um, and interestingly, the, the way that they're made, the fact of, of steeping and brewing is similar to the way that scripture meditation works for us, right? Um, the simple act of spending time in the revealed word of God um, changes the heart, causes a change in the hearts of the believers, right? As God reveals himself through the scriptures as he really is. And so what I hope to show you in this text in Psalm 3 is how time spent in the word can give us confidence and knowledge to call on him in times of distress. When I'd first become a Christian in college, this was the summer of spring of 2010, I actually spent the entire summer reading the book of Psalms. I don't remember who told me to, but it was excellent advice. Uh, I really remember with great affection that season of life. Um, I'd finish a morning swim practice, and I'd sit down with breakfast in my Bible, and I felt like the Psalms were a mirror. They were a reflection of me and my emotions and the ups and downs of life, this roller coaster that we ride. And I, I didn't really know it at the time, but what I was doing was meditating on the scripture. I would sit and stew and brew over a text over and over and over again until I felt like I had extracted every bit of sweet soul sugar that I could. The book of Psalms is a collection of songs. It's essentially a hymn book for all the ages of the people of God worshiping. This particular Psalm, Psalm 3, is actually a psalm of lament. It's a psalm of sorrow and crying out to God, asking for his help. I, I tend to think of worshiping God as primarily done through prayers of adoration or thanksgiving. So can we worship God through lament? The Psalms would appear to give a clear and resounding yes. Over about a third of all the Psalms can be classified as a Psalm of lament. God is glorified when we cry out to him in a posture of humility, as the tax collector did when he beat his breast before the Lord in Luke 18. We also saw this morning there's an entire book of the Bible called Lamentations. You might object, but I thought Christians are always supposed to be happy. The glass is always half full and we're to have unshaking optimism. To that I would ask this. One of the highlights of our worship service every Sunday 
is actually a time of lament. Do you know when that is? It's the Lord's Supper. That's right. We come before the Lord in a posture of lament and pain as we remember the suffering of our Lord and we remember that it was our sin that caused his pain. Who are we to say that the Lord is not honored and glorified by the lament that he commanded at the Last Supper? God is glorified by our lament. And as we'll see in this psalm, he's glorified in his blessing poured out in our salvation. So let's go now to Psalm 3 and let's read that together. So Psalm chapter 3. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. And this is the word of the Lord. So this, this, this psalm was written by King David when he fled from Absalom. We get that from that first line. So before we begin our exposition, I think a little historical context is helpful here. David's third-born son is named Absalom, who was the first child to, with his wife, Maka. We actually know very little about Maka, only that she was the daughter of King Talmai, the king of Geshur. This comes from 1 Chronicles 3 and 2 Samuel 3, 3. David had actually performed raids against the Geshurites in 1 Samuel 27, 8, uh, an interesting possible meeting place between David and Maka. It's also important to understand the context of 2 Samuel 13, where the relationship between David and his son Absalom really begins to unravel. In this text, we see that Absalom has a beautiful sister named Tamar. Amnon, who's another one of David's sons and half-brother to Absalom, um, is actually in love with Tamar. In a terrible story of deception and wickedness, Amnon actually tricks David into letting Tamar nurse him while he's faking sick. He subsequently rapes Tamar and then sends her away in an angry rage. In an act of mercy, Absalom takes Tamar, his sister, into his house to protect her. Scripture tells us that David was angry at Amnon, but there's actually no evidence that he did anything about it. Jewish law in Deuteronomy 22 gives instructions regarding this type of situation. Amnon should have been forced to marry Tamar after violating her, or perhaps, depending on her, her status, he should have even been stoned to death. David's apathy towards the situation is likely caused between the souring of this relationship between him and Absalom. So a full two years go by, and Absalom throws a party for all his brothers, and he commands his servants to kill Amnon which they do, and Absalom then flees to Geshur, the land of his mother, and he lives with his grandfather, King Talmai, for three years. Scripture tells us in 2 Samuel 13, verse 39, this is really interesting, and the spirit of the king, here being David, longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon 
since he was dead. So David is comforted by Absalom's actions, yet he doesn't seek to reach out at all. In an interesting turn of events, Joab actually requests David to bring Absalom back to Jerusalem. David finally does so, yet he refuses to allow Absalom to come into his presence, possibly because Absalom's now a murderer and David knows he too is deserving of death. So two years go by in this way, with Absalom being in the same city but never coming into David's presence. Finally, after getting Joab's attention by setting fire to his fields, Absalom is finally allowed to go into the king, and the king kisses Absalom. At this point, it was two years between Amnon's actions and Absalom killing him, three years of exile for Absalom, and then two more years of never coming into David's presence. Talk about time to let hatred and bitterness brew. I don't know about you, but at this point, this has dysfunctional family and confusion written all over it. By this point, the bitterness between Absalom and David has reached such a fever pitch that Absalom begins to stand beside the gate of Jerusalem and win the hearts of the people away from David. He amasses such a force after four years that David has no choice but to flee Jerusalem in fear. So if you, have, if you want to keep your finger on Psalm 3 and flip over to 2 Samuel 15, we'll be in 2 Samuel 15, specifically verse 30. This is the setting for David fleeing Jerusalem. And this is the setting for this psalm. And I think this is really important to understand. So that's 2 Samuel 15, verse 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. Read it one more time. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. So we have the dreadful setting of Psalm 3. If you're taking notes this morning, our main point of implication from this whole psalm is this, probably because I'm not good enough for three points, so you just get one. (laughs) It is this, cry out to the Lord with an understanding of who he is. Cry out to the Lord with an understanding of who he is. We do not call on a God who is distant or who is weak or who requires anything from us. We call out to the all-sufficient and sustaining creator of the universe who has told us his name. David begins the psalm by calling on the Lord. If you notice in your Bible, the word Lord is actually written in all caps. And this is our English way of specifying the personal name for God, this Yahweh. This is the name that God gives Moses in the burning bush and the name by which God establishes his covenant with Israel. We actually don't know exactly how to pronounce Yahweh because the Jewish people held this name with such reverence that they refused to speak it. The consonants of of this word is Y-H-W-H, and the technical term for nerds like me in the room is the tetragrammaton, um, which is the term for the letters Y-H-W-H. It's based in the Hebrew word for being. This name gives the impression of one who's self-sufficient, who's self-sustaining, who is in need of nothing. Indeed, the cattle on a thousand hills are his, 
Heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. And yet he comes down from that greatness and he gives his name to Israel. This name is simultaneously one of intimacy and closeness set against his incalculable might and glory. Scribes would later take the words from the Hebrew word Adonai, which means Lord or master, and insert them between Y-H-W-H to give us Y-A-H-W-E-H, the name of Yahweh. So for this reason, our English Bibles use this term here, Lord, to honor that tradition. We're reminded by this that David knows his God. He was, after all, a man after God's own heart. While Yahweh is the God of the universe, he's also the God of David. Our cry, too, in times of anguish should be to cry out to God. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. David continues, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Indeed, David had many enemies at this point, all of whom had gone after Absalom. It appears as a cry of anguish to the Lord. Now, David knows that the multitude of enemies set against him is not a problem for God. After all, God had preserved him time and time again through his life from many enemies at this point. Yet in his relationship with his father, in his Yahweh, he feels the security to express his anxiety exactly as it is. Maybe some of you like me need to remember this and hear this today. Don't let your intellect get in the way of your relationship with your Lord. Don't let your intellect get in the way of your relationship with your Lord. If you have something you need to say to God, even though you know he's above it, tell him anyway, because he will hear you. Your prayers do not always have to be a calculated, articulate monologue. And if you feel that they have to be, it's a lie from the devil himself to keep you from intimacy with your God. And it's what the Pharisees thought. So I, I, I love the ACTS method of prayer just as much as anybody else. If you're familiar with the ACTS method, it's just an acronym for A-C-T-S, right? Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. It's a beautiful way to structure your prayer um, as you pray to God. And it's really modeled after the Lord's Prayer in, in the New Testament. Um, and so we, we first come, we adore the Lord for who he is. And then we, we confess our sins to him in, in a posture of humility. And then we, we give him thanks for his provision and all the ways that he's working. And then we ask him for what we need. But I would argue that that's not always the right structure to prayer. It should probably be our predominant one. But I think that what, what I hope to show you is that David gives us a slightly different model for times of great anxiety and, and distress. It, it would be really odd if one of my kids stubbed a toe or skinned a knee and came running up to me and, and said, hey, daddy, um, you're so tall and so strong. Um, I'm, I'm sorry I didn't clean my room last night. And uh, thanks for making me breakfast. Um, and my toe's bleeding. <laughs> Right? That would be totally weird. What, what do they actually do? They come running full speed ahead and come crashing into me like a bull after a red cape. And there's just blood and tears and sweat and drool just all over me. And I love it. 
I absolutely love it. And if I feel that way, wretched sinner that I am, how much more so does God feel that way about you? I don't know what's on your mind this morning, but God does. So don't go to him in prayer trying to hide from him because he cares for you. And if you wonder about the degree of that care, look to the cross. That, that is how much he cares for you. So cry out to the Lord. Cry out to him with an understanding of who he is. The story of David fleeing from Absalom comes after Nathan the prophet gave a really harsh rebuke um, uh, from the Lord to David for his actions concerning, concerning Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. We actually saw this just a few weeks ago before Pastor Justin left. Um, the Lord promises David in 2 Samuel 12 that the sword, excuse me, will never be removed from David's house and that evil from within David's house will rise up against him. And I don't know if you caught this when Pastor Justin was preaching. So Nathan says this in chapter 12, verse 13. He says, the Lord has put away your sin. The Lord has put away your sin. David was a man who had clearly messed up and judgment was coming his way and he was forced to flee Jerusalem. And so other people were pointing to David's circumstances as evidence of his condemnation. And David did receive the judgment pronounced by Nathan for his deeds, yet his life was spared and his sin was put away by the Lord. The comments of these other people likely worsened David's misery in this season, um, acting as a repeated reminder of David's trial. And many times in our lives, we too are given troubling comments from others in a season of grief. These comments can lead us to doubt God's love for us. For me, most of these comments come from within my own head as doubts of God's love form in the presence of tragedy, of grief, and of pain. David quickly pivots from this comment, and we'll see in a moment, but we would do well to remember that our circumstances nor the comments of others ever define our relationship before the Lord. Only Christ's finished work on the cross gets to decide our status before him. So be wise and discerning with which voices you listen to, those inside your own head and those outside. Only listen to those that speak truth. So cry out to the Lord with an understanding of who he is. David makes a significant pivot here at the start of verse three. He says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. David can testify from previous experience of the Lord's protection, getting into a bit of, of this warrior God concept for the day. He, he was protected from Goliath, from Saul, from the Philistines, and many other enemies. But even if D David didn't have those personal experiences, he has the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. Here he sees how God was a shield to Noah from the flood, to a young Israel from famine, he was a shield of protection against Pharaoh. He was a shield of protection from heat and cold in the wilderness when he was the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire and many other examples. The Lord, here again, the personal name of Yahweh, he is a protector of David from the consequences of his own sin. God says, what did he say? He said, the Lord has put away your sin. Ultimately, that's the real protection that we need isn't it? 
We need protection from the just punishment of our sin. We need protection from the wrath of God himself, which can only be accomplished by God because he's just in the condemnation of sin. This verse points to the shield of Christ who takes away our sins and paid the penalty that we deserve. Ephesians 6 says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. David sought to honor the Lord in all that he did. And the Lord was therefore his glory, his most prized, his most loved, his most admired. David also seeks the Lord's glory. He keeps recognizing God for the work he had done in his life over and over again. It's also possible that David recognizes that his own glory as king of Israel is a gift from the Lord. So in that sense, David's glory is the Lord's. The Lord is the lifter of David's head, literally lifting his head out of the sheepfold of his father's Jesse's house and anointing him with oil to be king. David recognizes that it is the Lord who exalts him and who has been raising him up over the entire course of his life. David finds himself, remember what we read earlier? With his head covered, weeping up the Mount of Olives. And in this moment of sorrow, he remembers that the Lord is our glory and the lifter of our heads. David is wounded by the circumstances of life and he bleeds worship. We see this after the death of Bathsheba's firstborn son. We saw it a few weeks ago, 2 Samuel 12, 20. David finds out the child is dead. And what does he do? He goes into the house of the Lord and worships. David is our example here. We too should worship in times of great sorrow and pain. For our glory is that of Christ the risen and perfect man, equal in glory and honor to the Father seated at his right hand. And those white robes of perfection, he has given to us. So let me ask you a question. The last time you were wounded by the circumstances of life, what came out of you? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Do not be ashamed if your answer to that question is not pleasant. Neither is mine. Because the Lord is our glory and the lifter of your head. He takes away the shame of our failures through his spilled blood on the cross. So cry out to the Lord with an understanding of who he is. David continues, I cried out aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. David knew that the Lord was not silent, that he was a living God, able to speak to him through the prophets and the Pentateuch. This is his immediate argument against those who told him earlier that there's no salvation for him in God. David recognizes that we have a God who speaks. And how much more so now does this verse ring through? Revelation tells us that the prayers of the saints are like incense before the Lord. The veil of the temple has been torn in two from top to bottom, giving you and me access to the very presence of God, to that, giving us access to that holy hill through Christ. The Lord is faithful to answer all of your prayers by his wisdom, by his timing, and by his will. Church, the holy hill of God the Father is open to you through Christ. So come and cry out to him because he hears and he answers. 
David says, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. Interestingly, David mentions here that he sleeps. Perhaps this is an indication that David was so exhausted from fleeing that he had to rest, or perhaps he was so comforted by the Lord in his hour of need that he had no trouble sleeping. Perhaps David is so overwhelmed with sorrow for having to flee Jerusalem at the hand of his son that he's surprised to wake. Perhaps this situation feels like a metaphorical death to him. Sleep is a gift of common grace from God. Think about it. You voluntarily render yourself completely unconscious during the darkest hours of the day for eight hours. That seems like a significant evolutionary disadvantage to me. There are a lot of things that crawl around in the night that are not pleasant. Sleep for the believer and the unbeliever alike requires trust in something other than themselves. Now, I'm I'm not making a blanket statement that if you can't sleep, you don't trust God. Sleep's far more complicated than just one factor. However, the next time you can't sleep at night, consider using that time to meditate on God's word. Some of my sweetest times with the Lord have been all alone at 3 a.m. with my Bible because I couldn't sleep. I've been amazed at what the Lord can do to fears, to anxieties, when we meditate on his word. David continues, he says, I will, be af- I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. David was completely surrounded and being taunted by his enemies in verse 2. And don't forget, he just slept in the last verse. I don't know about you, but if I'm surrounded, I don't think I'm sleeping. And yet he says that he is unafraid. David's either a lunatic for thinking himself safe, or he had confidence in a protector who was greater than the thousands of people surrounding him. The latter, of course, is correct in this case. David knew that the strength of his Lord was greater than any enemy that he had ever faced. When he faced Goliath, he did not do so in his own strength. Do you remember what he said? He said to Goliath, this is back in 1 Samuel 17, he said, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will give you into my hand that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. David knows the strength of his Lord, and that strength is what gives him comfort. We too can draw comfort and security from the strength of our Lord. Again, I don't know what troubles you today, what manner of armies or temptation or sickness or fear or anxiety surround you. But I do know the Lord who will deliver you from all of them. Because he is the one who defeated the legions of the devil. He resisted the temptation of Satan himself. He cured the sick. He comforted the fearful. And he gave peace to the anxious. Jesus said in John 16, 33, he said, In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Again, in John 10, 27 to 30, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I 
and the Father are one. I don't claim to know the plans of the Lord. I cannot guarantee in this life you will be free from trouble. As you just heard, you probably will have trouble. But I can guarantee that if you trust in the Lord and in his son, Jesus, you will one day be completely free. So cry out to the Lord with an understanding of who he is. David continues, he says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. David now petitions the Lord for action. He's already shown that the Lord is a shield, that he answers prayer, that he gives peace and rest, and that he relinquishes fear. So David calls on Yahweh, the personal name of God of the universe, to arise and save him. We know from the rest of 2 Samuel that God indeed does arise and save David from the hand of Absalom. In an interesting parallel, it's also Jesus who in his act of rising from the grave saves us. So we can echo David's prayer in a new covenant context. Arise, Lord Jesus, ascend to glory and save us from our sins. Praise God that Jesus has done exactly that. David recognizes that it is the Lord who avenges he had learned this lesson well uh, from his interaction with Nabal in 1 Samuel 25. Do you remember that? In short, David had planned to avenge himself against an offense from Nabal, but was stopped by the hand of the Lord working through Abigail. Soon after staying David's hand, the Lord avenges David and kills Nabal. And we too must learn and remember that it is the Lord who avenges us. Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. When we pray verses like this, when we say, when, when, we, when we're praying a psalm back, when we say, uh, we pray to the Lord to strike all my enemies on the cheek and break the teeth of the wicked. It's important to remember that this is an expression of moral indignation, not personal vengeance. These are expressions of moral indignation and not personal vengeance. David says here that the Lord will strike all my enemies on the cheek. An interesting parallel to Jesus being struck on the cheek by the high priest during his trial. Here, though, it's the Lord repaying the strike on David's enemies. The next verse is also interesting, parallel to the phrase in the New Testament for hell, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Make no mistake, the vengeance of the Lord is not something to be trifled with. And it is coming for every wicked deed done on earth. And it is right for the Lord in his goodness to do so. For only he can execute perfect justice. So cry to the Lord with an understanding of who he is. There's a pattern in the psalm that echoes our own reactions to sorrow and hardship. I mentioned it very briefly earlier. So David starts this psalm with a, with a cry of anguish, a, a scream of, of pain to the Lord in verses 1 and 2. And, and that cry then makes him pivot, and he remembers who the Lord is in verses 3 and 4. And then this pivot brings him comfort so that he sleeps and he's no longer afraid. And then he calls boldly on the Lord in verse 7. And then what does he do? He closes the crescendo in, in praise in verse 8. I'm not exactly sure the process that David went through after um, Bathsheba's firstborn son died, 
I'm not sure the process that he went through here, uh, although the psalm probably gives a, a really good outline. But it's often that in, in moments of sorrow and distress, we can use this as a model for praying back to God. We, we cry out to the Lord first, unashamedly and with all manner of, of transparency. And as, as we see that, that hopelessness of our circumstances and our own strength through our cry, it should lead us to remember who God is in all of his strength, that he's never hopeless, and glory and all of his love and all of his care for us. And so once, once we recognize his strength and the context of our reconciled relationship with him, it's then that we can go boldly and ask for what we need. And then when our requests are made, what was David's response? He worshiped. And so ours is the same. We can fall and worship for our God for how great he is. So David concludes the psalm. He says that salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. David recognizes that his hope for rescue lies only in the Lord. David shows us throughout his life such a beautiful picture of a man after God's own heart. He wasn't perfect, but in, in many different ways. But specifically here, he shows his reliance on the Lord. David was a great king and a warrior over the course of his entire life. Yet in this moment, he relied on the Lord in this hour of need, more than his experience, more than his own strength, more than the strength of his men. And David finally petitions the Lord for blessing on his people. He, he recognizes that every good gift comes from the Lord. This is an echo of James chapter 1 where it says that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. We too recognize that salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to our Lord Jesus Christ, who bore the penalty that you and I deserved. We're deserving of wrath by our sinful nature. None of us is perfect. No one is righteous. No, not one. Yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And yet he didn't stay dead because death could not hold him. He defeated our greatest enemy, death itself. And he rose so that we too might rise with him in newness of life. And he is now seated at the Father's right hand in glory, interceding for you and for me, not by any merit of our own, but because he paid it all for us. This church, this is the Lord that you must know. Praise God that salvation belongs to the Lord. His blessing is upon us now through the finished work of Christ, and he has lavished his love upon us. And we will be recipients of that blessing and the endless pleasures at his right hand for all of eternity. Do you know him today? Any of you today don't know him? Come to Christ. His arms are open wide to receive you exactly as you are. He bids you to come and die to your sin and to walk with him in newness of life. If you have questions about this, come find me afterwards. Come find one of our other pastors. We would love to talk to you. To those of you who are believers in Christ, remember that you cannot cry out to him who you do not know. If you don't know him, you may not feel you can cry out to him for fear of embarrassment or shame. If you don't know him, you won't be comforted in your crying out because you're not sure if he's powerful enough or if he cares enough. If you don't know him, you will not be bold enough to call for his help. Yet remember that in Christ, your fear or embarrassment 
your shame are taken away. So come to the Father with all of your mess and all of your brokenness and all of your heartache. Remember that in the resurrection of Christ, that the Father's power was demonstrated and no one can snatch you out of his hand. And the measure of his love for you is Christ on the cross. You can boldly go before the throne of grace today with your request because the veil of the temple has been torn in two and your father has adopted you into his house. So how do you get to know him more? Through his word, through our Bible, it is sufficient. A bit of an extended scripture reading here, but I think it's worthwhile reading. Um, this is Peter writing this. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Don't miss this. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing that this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. One of the really unique things about Christianity is that it's rooted in history, in reliable accounts that we have of eyewitnesses recorded for us in the Bible. Sola Scriptura. It is what you need to know God. As water becomes tea or coffee by spending time in the presence of tea leaves or coffee grounds, so we too become more like Christ by spending time in his word. You will fall more in love with Yahweh by spending time steeping and brewing in his word. There is so much more for you, church, to glean in this book. It is worthy of a lifetime of study. So spend time in the word and intimately know the God who saved you. Salvation belongs to the Lord and not to us. Praise God for it. His blessing is already on each one of you today in Christ. I pray for his continued blessing on you as you walk with him day by day. So we come to the Lord, to Yahweh, to the maker of all the earth, to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and cry out to him, for he cares for you. Know your Lord, church. Know him through his word and cry out to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through your scriptures. Thank you for this psalm. Thank you for preserving it. Thank you for this psalm of lament. May we too know you well enough to cry out to you. Father, I pray for anyone who might be hurting in this room, who might be walking through the valley of the shadow of death. I pray that you would be present there with them. 
that you would be the God of all comfort, that you would be the great, the great and powerful God, the great warrior God in Christ we know you to be. In Jesus' name, amen.